Yes. All right, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 10. <clears throat> We're going to look at three different stories today. I'd like to start by reading the first one. So you can get to Luke 10, and then go ahead and stand, and we'll read this first story together, beginning in verse 25. I'm going to arise as we read this together. And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he put out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and thank you that it guides us in so many things. Help us, Lord, to learn the lessons you would teach us from these stories this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Are you going to have a seat? <clears throat> it's become uh, common in our day among non-Christians to affirm that Jesus was a good teacher or a great teacher, whom we can learn a lot from and nothing else. And so many in the church have, have rightfully rejected that said, no, 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 we, we can't just say Jesus was a good teacher and then ignore the, the content of what he said and not actually give some serious thought to it. And probably most famously, C.S. Lewis told us that Jesus left us no room for that, right? He said, if you really examine the teachings of this so-called good teacher and, and you think about what he claimed about himself, there's no room to just say he's a good teacher, but I'm not going to listen to what he said. Because he, he didn't really set, set himself up in that way. And we, when he claimed to be son of God, when he claimed to be Lord of all, when he claimed to have authority over all things, he, he's either doing those as a, a good teacher speaking truth about himself, or as Lewis famously said, he's, he's doing that as either a, a liar or a lunatic. And either way, we should do away with him as fast as we can and, and leave no room for this business of he's a... He's just a good teacher, and I'm going to see what I can learn from him, and I'm just going to ignore this crazy stuff he said or something like that. Uh, but in, in the midst of that, in the midst of us Christians rightly affirming that Jesus is more than just a good teacher, I think it's also good for us to remind ourselves that he's not less than a good teacher. He actually was a great teacher, and we can learn from the way he approached those who uh, he instructed. Right? And we see in this particular story, in these next two that we're going to look at, we're going to see three particular lessons that Jesus taught his, his followers, and then uh, by proxy, some of these people that had approached him and were seeking to learn from him as well. And what I want to draw attention to this morning is 
how in particular Jesus taught them these things, because I think it's it's masterful. Uh, there's so much we can we can learn from in the way he taught these things. All of these lessons are going to center on that theme that we heard there, spoken by the, the lawyer, uh, about loving God and loving others. And so we're going to look at three lessons. The first one is a lesson in mercy, in the, the passage we just read there in Luke chapter 10, again in verse 25. So a lawyer approaches Jesus, and he asks him what sounds like a pretty good question, right? How... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that seems like a great question. And yet as the conversation progresses, we realize that the man's heart is probably not in the right place when he asked it. And undoubtedly, Jesus was aware of this. And that uh, becomes clear as we go forward. So Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And the guy gives a great answer. He quotes uh, the, the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Basically, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in the context, this is a great answer. If this were a teacher and a student in a classroom, he would have passed the test, right? But there was more at stake than just knowing the right thing. And I think in this scene in particular, uh, we see this, this image of the danger of accumulating knowledge without having faith as its foundation. And, and that should scare us all a little bit. Uh, because the reality is, for most of us in this room, uh, if you've grown up in the South, if you've grown up in a... Uh, Christian, kind of culturally Christian context, uh, if you happen to attend a school that is Christian in name, uh, then there's a good chance that if Jesus were to approach you this morning and ask you some questions, you could give him the right answers. You could pass the test in terms of speaking the right knowledge in response to the question. So it's good for us to be reminded that just knowing the right things to say isn't the same thing as, as knowing the person to whom you're speaking. Uh, that seems to be what the man is lacking. So Jesus says, you're right. That's right. That's a good answer. That's what the law says. Go and do it. But then the man wants more. And Luke tells us why. In verse 29, he's desiring to justify himself. And so then he asks, and who is my neighbor? So his, his purpose has become a little more clear here. He's, he's seeking kind of a minimum to aim at. And this is so easy to do. And we, we do this today, even, even as Christians. We, we think about, what's the standard I must meet in order to gain or keep God's favor? Or we might think of it as, what's the minimum I can give and not feel guilty afterwards? Whether giving of my financial resources or my time, my energy into the church or some other good thing. So what's kind of the, the lowest common bar I can aim at? As long as I rise above that, I'm going to feel pretty good about who I am and who I am before the Lord. Or you might even think, what are what are the minimum things I can do as a disciple to, to make me feel good about my relationship with God and yet not make me look crazy to the world around me? You, know, you, you kind of want to be a Christian as long as it doesn't get too, uh, too strange to outsiders, right? And so all along the way, we're, we're falling into that same trap of what kind of minimum obedience would Jesus accept from me? And Jesus makes clear in this story, uh, he, he wants nothing to do with such obedience and wouldn't even call it by that term. And he, he makes it clear by, by this familiar parable, uh, of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so you guys know the story. A man is leaving Jerusalem. He comes down on his way to Jericho. He's attacked by robbers. He's left for dead. And then two guys come by who we think would be the heroes. Uh, these are the kind of guys we'd expect to help him out, a Levite and a priest. And yet they pass him by without offering him any help, even going on the other side of the road. 
Jesus is, is kind of indicting the Jewish religious system uh, in, in the way he's constructing the story. And there's, there's rhetorical power here in the identities of the people. Right? I was trying to think this week of, of a good parallel to this, and this is the best I could come up with. Imagine I told you that last night after the game, sorry to bring that up to some of you, um, there was a guy, big USC fan, came out to cheer on his team last night. He left the Vista, and as he was coming down toward Gervais Street Bridge, he was mugged. And he was left for dead. He was left on the side of the street, he took his wallet, he took his phone, hopeless, helpless, what's he going to do? And all of a sudden he sees two guys coming, and as they get closer, he realizes they're in garnet and black. And he sees they're a little down, but they've got their arms around each other, they're trying to stick together, forever to thee, whatever the song is, and they're pouring, and he's thinking, I'm okay, I'm going to be all right. These are my people, they're coming, they're going to help me. And then they notice him, and they just sort of go on to the other side of the bridge, right? And says, man, thinks, I've got, I've got no hope. And then all of a sudden he sees another guy coming. And he thinks, oh, this has gone from bad to worse. This guy's wearing purple and orange. And he's got a paw print on his sweatshirt. And he was clearly out last night just to root against whatever good was happening locally here. And the guy on the side of the street thinks, I have no chance. This guy's not going to help me. We are rivals. Uh, we're enemies. And then that guy becomes the hero of the story. That's basically what happened here in, in Jesus' little parable. The Jews and the Samaritans didn't play basketball against each other, uh, but they, if they would have, they would have hated each other. They, they were rivals. They had very different understandings of the faith, they had very different understandings of God, and they very much looked down on each other, not unlike sports rivalries, right? And so uh, in the story, Jesus is trying to really draw attention to the mercy that this man shows by making him a Samaritan. Not, not only does he do some unexpected acts of love, but he is an unexpected person to be doing such things. And as we're reading the story, he shows the man some great love and, and mercy. So the Samaritan has compassion in his heart. Uh, he addressed the man's immediate needs. He doesn't, he doesn't just meet him and start praying for him and sharing the gospel. He starts binding up his wounds and, and addressing those immediate problems. And then he, he puts him on his donkey. That probably meant that he walked himself the rest of the way. So that the man could ride, the injured man could ride. And then he, he, he put him up in an inn and he provided long-term care. He gives the guy two denarii. This would have uh, probably cared for the guy for about three and a half weeks, uh, given his, uh, his status in society. So the point of the story is pretty clear. I mean, this is an easy one to understand. Is this man's unexpected acts of mercy exemplify love of neighbor. Right? And so... Uh, it's, it's an easy parable to understand, but in the context, remember, that's not exactly what the guy asked. And that's kind of Jesus' point all along. Because it, when you get to the end of the parable, and I'm losing my page because of the wind up here, uh, when you get to verse 36, uh, Jesus asks, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You see, the man had asked, Who is my neighbor? Jesus flips the question and says, Well, which one of these guys acted like? neighbor. He switches the focus from the object to the action. And what he's doing there is he's saying to that man, to his disciples who are no doubt over here in the conversation, and to any of us who would read this today as disciples of Jesus, this is how I want you to love others. Right? Not, not looking from, for some lines you can draw around the command, 
not looking for some minimum standard that you can go after so that you feel better about yourself and you don't feel bad on Sunday mornings. But no, you go open-handed, wide-eyed, ready to serve, ready to meet whatever needs may come your way. Whether they're from someone that you would expect to, to love or have a lot in common with, or whether you're crossing major cultural barriers to extend mercy. See, our aim as disciples should be to love others, not meet some kind of quota. And so that's the lesson Jesus gives us here in this lesson in mercy. We're going to come back to that. I'm going to kind of get through each of these stories, and we'll try to tie them together at the end. So let's look at the next one here, beginning in verse 38. Uh, we're going to read these verses together here. Luke 10, 38. So now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen a good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So in that first story, we had a lesson in mercy. Here we have a lesson in priorities. And again, it's a pretty straightforward story. Jesus enters the home of two sisters. Martha is seeking to be a good hostess. And Mary is being a good disciple, sitting at the feet of her teacher, this master teacher, and learning all she can from him. Now, I don't know about you guys, this is one of my least favorite stories in all of Scripture. Uh, whenever I read this, I find myself wanting to argue with the text. Uh, and I just self-disclose that as we get into it. I'm the kind of guy who really values productivity. Uh, you can ask my, my wife, I picked up on this a few years ago, when she would ask me how was your day, I would instinctively answer with a list of things I had gotten done. <laughs> At some point I realized that's not actually what she's asking, and that actually reveals something really bad about me that I have to work through. <laughs> I'm defining my days and defining myself in some sense by what I'm getting done. So enough with that confession. But anyway, I, I value productivity. Uh, I value hard work. And I'm a practical guy. And so when I read this story, I think, you know, Mary, Mary seems sweet. I appreciate her sitting at Jesus' feet and learning. But I just want to say, Jesus, if you're at Mary's house, you would starve. Right? Like, no one should be there in a meal. And it's cool that she wants to hang out with you, but somebody's got to do something in order for there to be some food there. So I've always struggled with this story, and, and often uh, in the history of the church, I think uh, the, the kind of interpretive history of this passage it gets, it's kind of muddy, because especially in the Roman Catholic days, they would talk about the active life versus the contemplative life, and, and so the active life was like the life of service, and you, you have whole systems of monasteries that are built around that, and then you have this contemplative life that is, is more meditative and more reflective, and we're going to think about the goodness of God all the time. Um, even if that draws us out of the world. And, and those folks would say, look, here's Mary and Martha. Martha's active, Mary's contemplative. Which one does Jesus say is better at the end of the story, right? So what we all need to do is get up the mountains and meditate and think and reflect and praise God and pray all the time. Um, and, and we'll just figure out how things work later. And I, I think that's a misapplication, too. And so, so what's going on here? How are we going to make some sense of this? Well, here's what I think is happening. I think Martha is not ultimately doing the wrong thing here. I think what she's doing is the right thing in the wrong way. So she's doing something that was good to do had she done it with the right heart and the right attitude. But I think she was doing the right thing in the wrong 
way, which again kind of comforts me as a guy who's aimed at productivity a lot of times, and also scares me because it, it again warns me that some days that list looks pretty good in terms of all the things I got done, but I, I might have completely failed because I might have done it in the wrong way. And so here are the two ways that I think Martha was askew of what she should have been doing, doing here. On the first hand, her service was distracting her from her Savior. And it says that right there in the text. Martha was distracted with much serving. So you can imagine this. Martha's busying herself about the house. She's trying to get everything ready. This is a big day for her. And she's trying to get everything just right. And she's so focused on the things she's doing that she's missing out on the bigger picture of what's happening around her. I used to have a friend who would say, activity is the enemy of intimacy. I think that's a good line. Activity is the enemy of intimacy. If we're not careful, our quest for productivity can actually hinder our relationship with the Lord. And we can be so focused on doing things for Him that we never spend any time with Him. And if I can speak to a, a smaller segment of you guys for just a moment, I would say, I think this is especially dangerous for you guys that are in college. Uh, college uh, feels like the busiest time of your life. Uh, you've got a, a crew of people mostly sitting behind you right now that will nod their heads with me and say, it's actually not. <laughs> because later in life, uh, things tend to get a lot busier. And the way that they get particularly busier is you actually have responsibilities that you haven't freely chosen as much as you have in college. And you can't just choose to, to get rid of like your kids and your family, your job and paying your bills and things like that. So, uh, so, so college can feel really busy, um, but it's often busy with things you've chosen to add to your plate. And, and so the danger for Christian college students is that you fill your schedule with spiritual busyness and you distract yourself from God by constantly serving God, right? Now, I start with college students because you guys, I think, have the, the, uh, maybe the greatest danger to this because your schedule is sort of open-ended, right? Now, that doesn't mean that the rest of us can't make this same mistake. I think any of us could acknowledge that we're capable of getting so focused on the things we ought to do for God that we don't focus on actually spending time with God and then learning from Him, seeking Him in His Word, sitting beneath the authority of the Scriptures, and just seeking to grow in our understanding and knowledge of Him. And I'll be honest with you, often the church cultivates this. We, we try as leaders, and we, we talk about stuff like this, even in terms of our schedule and things we announce on Sunday mornings, and you know, we're starting to get too many things going on this month, maybe we can move that to the next month, this kind of thing. It's not because we're lazy and we don't want to have a bunch of stuff going on as a church. It's just that we realize that activity, even church activity, even community activity within the church, can actually be the enemy of intimacy with the Lord. And so if we're not careful, we get out of balance and we're, we're doing so much that our service becomes a distraction uh, from our Savior. And I think that's one thing that Martha had wrong here. Uh, the other thing I think she had wrong is that she was, she was anxious and she was comparing her work to her sister. And I think what was going on, again, that's right there in the text. She, she asked Jesus, why aren't you busting in her for helping me? Uh, and then Jesus says, you're anxious about many things. I think what was going on there is her service was rooted in self-interest. Right? So that, that anxiety was welling up because she was seeing this day as a moment or an opportunity for self-justification. Right? It, it's almost like she heard the previous parable 
I don't, I don't think that's actually what happened. I'm just saying it's almost like she heard that parable and said, okay, so being a good neighbor is being merciful and loving to others. I've got the ultimate guest in my house today. I'm going to be the ultimate neighbor. And I'm going to throw him the best dinner party he has ever seen. It's going to be like nothing he's experienced to this point. And this is going to be how I show that I love the Lord. I'm going to do all these great things for him and impress him and show him that I belong in his family. Right? And you hear that. You hear all those eyes in there. And you hear that it's ultimately rooted in a kind of self-interest. It's not about loving others. It's about loving Right? And so Martha, Martha would have been a great person to have on the team. I think she would have gotten a lot done. Uh, the point that Jesus is making in, uh, in correcting her, and the point that Luke is making in, in pulling these stories side by side, is, is we have to be careful that our, our love of others is rooted in a love for God. And it's not some kind of love for ourselves that we're just finding a place to play out on. And, and it just so happens that it's also a church thing, so we feel extra, extra good about it. Mary, Jesus says, uh, let us hear what he says to her. Mary has chosen the good portion, or in that context, the correct meal. Martha's getting this meal ready. Jesus says, Mary has found the food that will never end, that will satisfy forever. And so she's, she's the one we ought to emulate there. So we have a lesson in priorities and then lastly here, we want to get to the Lord's Prayer and we're going to have a lesson in prayer. So let's read uh, the beginning of Luke chapter 11. Uh, I'm going to skip the beginning because we read uh, the Lord's Prayer a moment ago. We'll come back to that. Let's, let's pick up in verse 5 and read through verse 13. And we'll see how all these stories kind of fit together. <laughs> so Jesus said to them, after instructing them in prayer, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to, be, to set before him. And he would answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise, and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Alright, so Jesus, uh, we see this throughout the Gospels. Jesus is, is persistent in his prayer. And he's constantly... Sort of uh, setting this example of dependence on God as he, as he goes off to pray alone, obviously praying in front of the disciples as well. And so the disciples ask him, teach us how to pray. You know, again, they're going to this master teacher. They're saying, teach us how you pray and how we ought to pray. And so he begins in that passage that we read earlier uh, with the language of prayer. He says, when you pray, say, Father. And I think that's a good place for us to pause and recognize that Jesus invites us into this relationship where we can address God in an intimate way. We can address him as Father. And yet there's a tension here because the next phrase is Father, hallowed be your name. And so we're to describe holiness to God. We're to recognize his, his majesty and his moral perfection. And so we're to say, Father, thank you for enabling me to speak to you like this. Thank, thank you for enabling me to be near to you. 
And yet, even as I've grown near to you now, I'm acknowledging that you are so set apart from me. I have no business in this conversation. And I think there's a subtle balance there that we have to strike in the language of our prayers. So I, I, I don't think when we pray, we have to sound like we're reciting the King James Version of the Bible and use lots of words. I don't think God especially hears hyphenated words better than unhyphenated, simple, one-syllable words or anything like that. Uh, what, what I do think is very important for our sake, not because uh, it will cause God to, to bend his will in our direction necessarily, but for our sake, I think it's, it's important that we speak to God in a way that reminds us who we are speaking to, right? And so there's a, there's a language that I use among my friends and peers, and then there's a way that I speak to my boss, right? There's a, there's a way that you speak to your, your classmates, and then there's a way that you speak to your teacher. There's, there's a way that we speak to those whom we view as equals, and there's a way we speak to those whom we view as an authority over us. And I think as we pray, we have to make sure that our language, again, not for the sake of being impressive or long-winded or anything like that, but in our own hearts, we just need to make sure we're speaking to someone, make sure we remind ourselves that we're speaking to someone that has ultimate authority over us. And so Jesus says, Father, hallowed be your name. And then he gives basically four things to pray for, and we can spend a whole lot of time on these things. I just reference a few things briefly. Uh, he says, your kingdom come. This is pray for God's reign to extend on earth. We talked about that a little bit last week. He says, give us our daily bread. So we should never be ashamed to ask God for our daily needs. We should go to God with the things we need. He says, he prays for mercy. He asks us, ask God to help us extend mercy to others. This is significant because it keeps our sin and our salvation ever before us. And then he prays for protection against temptation, which is Interesting for Jesus himself to pray as one uh, who never gave in to temptation. But I think this keeps our weakness and our need of strength uh, ever before us. So, so each of these phrases, and I don't think Jesus is saying, when you pray, always say these exact words. But I think he's, he's setting forth a model for his disciples, saying, when you pray, pray in this way. Pray in such a way that your heart is reminded of these truths in your relationship with the Father. And then he actually spends more time on the manner of prayer than the language of prayer. So he gives them a few basic phrases, maybe some tracks to run on in their prayers. And then he tells a couple little stories because his concern is not just that they say the right words, but that they approach God with the right perspective. And so he tells these little stories. And the first one, he said, you know, imagine uh, you had a friend who came to you late at night, and he had a friend show up unexpected, and he wants to be a good neighbor, right? This connects to the stories we've just read. And he, but he doesn't have any food for him. He doesn't have any food in the house to, to give to a, a friend who stopped by. And so he needs something in order to be a good neighbor and be a good host. And, and Jesus says, look, you guys, even if it was inconvenient to you, you would help him. Right? Because he's persistent, because he came to you late at night, you would recognize this is a big deal. And it would turn your heart toward him, even if it, even if it bothered you. Right? And, and so the, the idea there is when we go to the Lord, we're, we're not pecking on his door like we're interrupting him, and it's late at night, he wouldn't want us to come. He's told us to come, right? But when we're coming to him in persistence and in boldness, knowing that we're speaking to one whose heart is already for us. Okay, so we've got to expect him to act on his love for us. And then he tells a second parable to kind of drive this home. He says, what father among you, if his kid asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion, right? If he asked for bread, would give him a serpent? 
and, and the, the point Jesus is getting at there is just kind of an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's basically saying, Look, you guys know how to be good dads. And what dad among you would, would give his son something awful when he asked for something good, right? And, and so when you approach the Heavenly Father, you can approach him knowing that his heart is for you. And you can approach him expectantly, uh, assuming that he's going to act on his love for you. And so again, you come to him in boldness. And then specifically, in the, uh, looking at this and trying to tie this together, specifically he says in verse 13, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is interesting because uh, nothing in the prayer suggested that we should pray for the Holy Spirit. Right? And yet Jesus says when God answers our prayers, which we should expect him to do, and we should come to him boldly and persistently, assuming he will answer those prayers. When he does, he will do so principally by giving us the Spirit. So how do, how do all those ideas connect? Well, I think the key is really to, to step back a bit and, and pull all three of these stories side by side and see how these ideas relate. So we had a lesson in mercy, we had a lesson in priorities, and then we had a lesson in prayer. And the theme of each was loving God and loving others in the right way, the right attitude. And I think that the order of how Luke presents it is significant, because what he basically does is he works backward from the end result to the foundation, from the, the final effect all the way back to the root cause there in that last phrase about the Spirit coming. And so the idea is that our love of others must be rooted in love of God, right, in, in both the lawyer and Martha miss that in part because their love of others is rooted in love of self, right? And so Jesus is saying our love of others must be rooted in love of God, and yet our love of God has to have an even firmer foundation, and that's God's love for us, right? So it's in giving the Spirit that Jesus enables, and God the Father enables us to love God and love others. And so when we take these verses as a commission statement for us as disciples, my basic purpose on life is to love God and love people. That's the right thing to do. But if you just take those as marching orders, it's very easy to end up like the lawyer, or to end up like Martha, saying, who shall I love? Where do I draw my lines? How can I impress God? And how can I make sure that I love him and love others in such a way that he's always going to love me? Jesus says, that's not the gospel. That's not how things work in my kingdom. In my kingdom, the command to love God and love others sits on the foundation of God's love freely given to you first. And we're reminded by that because when we pray and ask God to help us do those things, he responds by giving us the Spirit. And the Spirit is what empowers us to live that life. It's in the giving of the Spirit that we see God's love poured out to us. And I, I get that from Romans 5, verse 5. This is an interesting passage to set next to these stories. Paul says to the Romans, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we love God and we love others because God has loved us first. How do we know that God has loved us first? But his love has been poured out on us through the giving of the Spirit. And so the Spirit empowers the life of the disciple. The Spirit empowers us to love God 
and love others. As we think about wrapping up today and we think about transitioning to the communion table in a moment, I want to read the next verse in Romans 5 because I think it again gives us a nice place to end. So Paul says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And then in verse 6 he reminds us, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So God's love came to us, not after we started loving God rightly, not after we started loving others rightly, but while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, while we were still messing up those things, God demonstrated his love for us and that Jesus died for us. So we're going to wrap up our time this morning with a bit of time of reflection. I'm going to invite you to, to think about the things we've talked about, maybe look back over that passage and, and think about that call to love God and love others. Uh, if you're a Christian, uh, I would invite you to uh, approach the communion table. We have those set up at the back of the room on either side. Um, this is a time for us to kind of gather as a family and just remind ourselves of these truths. And one of the things we do each week as we're walking to the table is we're reminding ourselves that we are only able to approach God in prayer. We're only able to go out into his world to seek to show mercy to others because he has first come to us. So, so we take the bread and we take the juice to remind us that the broken body and blood of Jesus is what initiated this whole so, so we go to the table so that we can then go from the table uh, to love God and love others. Now, if, if you're with us this morning and, and you're not a Christian, or, or maybe you're just unsure about these things, you're not sure you know, kind of how you how you make sense of it all, where you, where you would stand on these things, uh, we'd ask you not to participate in communion because it is a family meal, and the Lord warns us that to participate in the wrong way when you're not ready actually brings judgment on you, so we don't want to encourage anyone toward that, uh, but we, we would ask you to spend this time just reflecting on what you've heard, think, think about the, the message, think about the text, think about what Jesus taught us this morning, and if you'd like to talk with anyone about it, you're welcome to talk with folks around you or some of the pastors would be in the back as well. Let me pray for us, and I invite you to the community table today. Lord, thank you for your word and your kindness and giving it to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for teaching us. Thank you for showing us where we fail you in so many ways. It's so easy for us to want to please you and yet not really know where to start. It's so easy for us to strive to do the right thing and yet to do it so often in the wrong way. Forgive us where we fail you and help us to be remembered now as we approach your table or that your forgiveness is not, is not uh, grounded in our goodness, it's not grounded in our obedience to you, it's not grounded in, in how much we mean it when we say, please forgive me, but it's it's grounded ultimately in your finished work on the cross. And so we thank you, Jesus, for that. We pray that you bring us into right reflection on those things this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.